Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening, and here's today's episode. This is Viviana, Samantha, and Nora, your host for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we're going to talk about multicultural education, critical multiculturalism, and the impacts of both on educators and classrooms. In this week's facilitation, we discuss multicultural education and critical educational conceptions. Before we dive into the critical discussion component for this podcast, we think it is very important to address key terms relating to multicultural education. First and foremost, we frequently see simplification of terms, one of those first terms being minority groups. And the term minority group is in deficit terms because symbolically, the term minority implies an inferior or deficit status. So there is a call for a language shift in using these terms. I know personally myself who identifies as a a person of color, I hate being called the minority group once I had the revelation of realizing like, hey, you know what? If I'm called a minority, that means somebody else is being put above me. And I'm like, well, at that point, let's just not call me that. I'd rather be called marginalized because I take it as being somebody trying to put me in a box that I know I don't belong in and I can fight out of as opposed to somebody putting me in that box and I have to stay there because somebody says I have to stay there. Now, in the pursuit of a more equitable and just society, it is important that we develop and use language that disrupts oppressive systems. So we have to be very careful uh, of the language that we use because we don't know who's around us and who might interpret those things in another way. Now, I know if I'm in a group of people and they're not familiar with the idea of how bad calling somebody a minority group is, I can't get as offended, but I feel like it's it's important to not be ignorant of the term and be careful and, and be critical of it. I like the term minoritized a lot. Um, and, and just like the idea of marginalized, I think it really implies that idea of uh, acting upon. Uh, and so you're understanding that. And I've used that since I've read it as well. Um, and I have had to clarify it for people, but I think it's a really good sort of like learning opportunity, even with friends and family. Um, to sort of like address that notion of language and how powerful and impactful language can be. Exactly. And especially when you have that reality check for somebody, as, mm-hmm. it, as it was for me with Dr. Popular's class. And I know I can tell somebody else. I know my sister, um, she is about to go into college and she's going to be a history teacher. So I, I, right now I'm trying to tell her like, hey, when you start reading these articles and when you start having these discussions with your professors, realize that calling somebody a minority group is no longer okay. Like, how about we stay away from that? And I know now, even though she's 18, she's going to go tell somebody like, that's a big no-no. How about we not do that? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's awesome. Again, that idea of sort of like having small impacts and then it ripples and, you know, goes out into the world in different ways. Plus it's just an empowering term. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think another important term that we need to um, contextualize in these conversations of multicultural education is the idea of neoliberalism in education. So neoliberalism is a political project carried out by capitalist class to consolidate their ability to generate profits. And this is kind of extended into um, sort of every aspect of our daily lives. And so there's this idea that neoliberalism has framed the purpose of education in terms of investments made in the development of students' human capital. So what students should learn in the value of education is relative to their individual prospects for future earnings. And so it's really kind of narrowed the conception of what education can be. Um, And it's raised important questions about the purpose of education, the relationship between schools, democratic life, and state governance. And I think there's a um, strong need for people to develop a critical relationship with neoliberal 
um, sort of ideals and what that impact is on education um, in order to sort of disrupt those, um, those sort of dominant forces that are being placed on education and groups that have been minoritized um, and sort of what education will mean for them. And when you consider the two, I think it's really important, the language that we use in the context or sort of like umbrella, because we're not post neoliberalism yet, are we? Uh, we have to be really careful as educators um, and you know, as leaders in our classroom and, and otherwise um, to just steer clear of some of the language and implications of that neoliberalism, uh, because it can be, it can have a huge impact. Um, the last thing you'd ever want a student uh, or one of your kiddos in your class is to hear sort of the language of neoliberalism come out in your classroom. Because I think the impacts of that could be really harmful. And I think also, too, oh, go for it. Um, it, it's, it's important to note, like neoliberalism has really, so obviously this is kind of this new sort of push into liberal, you know, what, what the past was and it's sort of this new push we're seeing, especially in our current political climate. And I think it's really important to note that these policies and this, this way of talking about education and talking about students has really sort of widened the gap of what um, we're starting to see with students. And it's really sort of entrenching those differences and, and, and showing that there's that difference in access and education based on where you fall in this neoliberalist order. And, and it's really sort of making those differences apparent in terms of um, sort of unequal access to education. Yeah. And I think what I was gonna say was it, it requires that call of action on educator and the educator part of reevaluating the purpose of why you became an educator. Because if you if you stick to this oppressive system, the systematic system, you're like, what are you doing to counter that idea? Because if you're into the classroom thinking, well, you know what, I'm here just to teach, and you're following by the idea of standardization and making sure that a kid takes a test and gets 100 so that you can get that price tag at the end, then you are literally countering everything that we've been reading so far, which is something that's very crucial because the whole point of this is to have those critical conversations. And, and if you call to action in that way and you refuse to realize like, hey, what are we doing? Why am I here? Then you're literally just- You're missing the point. The, mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think too, like a lot of people don't realize, like they hear the word neoliberalism and they think, oh, it's political or, oh, it's, you know, that doesn't affect me. That's, that's democratic. And I think people don't realize like just how entrenched it's become in our system in sort of these over ways. Yeah. And, and, and especially, especially in education, like standardization of curriculum is neoliberalism, um, standardized tests, is neoliberalism in practice, making benchmarks that students have to reach um, in sort of some uh, subjective um, conception of it is neoliberalism in action. And so I don't think people realize just how entrenched it is in their experiences of teacher education and, and sort of what they've come to understand education as. And it's sort of normalized, which I think is the problem. Well, going back to your what you put forth about access, we need to make sure that we are not normalizing this idea that education becomes about this distance of access. We can't normalize that. We need to fight that with everything we have as educators, leaders, and anything else <clears throat> as voters, right? Um, because we cannot accept that we are just going to have this huge abyss of difference between what is accessible for students um, because we need to, we need to acknowledge that equity and parity have to be of the utmost importance. And when you just sort of like fall into neoliberalism and let it perpetuate within your classroom, your environment, your you know uh, campus, district, and so forth, um, you're just acknowledging this difference and perpetuating it. And you know we can't do that. Think about where your kiddos are, right? So your students. <laughs> just and and I think that's sort of what's missing in a lot of conversations of education reform is I think they don't understand really just how 
you know, th the idea that we look at students, um, especially minoritized populations, and I, and I say especially, but mostly minoritized populations, we, we think of them in deficit terms, and that's a neoliberalist force acting in education. And so, you know, I think we've talked about this in prior podcasts where we've talked about, you know, how do you view your students? How are you seeing their funds of knowledge? Are you seeing community knowledge? And, and I think a lot of that is missing in discussions of education reform in terms of, you know, they're so concerned with why aren't they meeting the standard? Why aren't they reaching this, this bench post that we've decided matters? And, and that right there is, I think, where a lot of education reform is missing the mark because it's not really getting at what the root of the problem is. It's sort of just trying to figure out how to fix all of these, you know, outcomes of, of what neoliberalism has impacted education. Yeah. Um, the last thing that we wanted to clarify was this idea of multiculturalism, uh, benevolent multiculturalism, right, which comes straight from the reading, which I thought was such a great term and something I'm definitely keeping with me. Um, and the idea that multicultural education uh, overemphasized the impact of curricular change and underemphasized or simply ignored the wider structural constraints such as racism, sexism, discrimination, which affect minoritized students, right? That's straight from our reading. Um, and so the term benevolent multiculturalism comes into play um, because so much of this multiculturalism in that context um, deracialized, uh, was deracialized discourse, an approach which um, reified culture uh, and cultural difference, and which failed to address adequately, if at all, material issues of racism and disadvantage. And so that notion of benevolent multiculturalism speaks to the need for something that does address all of that in which we have this sort of critical multiculturalism, right? And so that is this distinguishing characteristic between the two. Um, and benevolent multiculturalism goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about with neoliberalism, right? So it's this kind of like liberal multiculturalism, which is what we want to steer away from, uh, which was the what, the four Fs, remember the food, the folklore, and the so forth from our reading, um, in which you are not addressing larger structural issues. They are really not even part of the conversation. Um, so we want to be aware of the distinction. Uh, we want to be aware of how that, not just the differences between the two, but how we act within those and how we bring that into our classroom, right? Now, if you notice um, in the Padlet that we had people discuss in, a mm -hmm. lot of multicultural uh, exposure that they had was, well, they made specific food plates from their country. And some cases they just played a little music, but like you said, it's not addressing any of the real issues that those cultures are even experiencing, mm -hmm. which is crazy to think, because I mean, People can make the argument like, well, they're elementary kids. They don't need to know about racism and sexism. But you start to realize like these kids need to be knowledgeable in the area, especially with how innovative technology is. You have six, seven year olds who are learning about the world. They're exposed to what's happening in China. They're exposed to what's happening in Cuba. So I think it's important to have that critical perspective now, the earlier, the better. Right. And the thing is, you can't avoid um, the, one of the big things that came out of the readings for me with this idea of ascription. You cannot avoid that there may be these concepts at work within their lives already. Um, and so how can you deny that they should be learning about this, you know what I mean? especially upon in minoritized populations? Um, and so I think it's really crucial and essential. And obviously it is, you know, um, aimed to whatever curricular level curricular level they are at, but kids can learn about this and, and it helps them. It's another tool with which they can see and view the world. I think what I get so frustrated at is this idea that like, that some topics are not appropriate for ages. And like, I get so frustrated at that idea because, you know, even my own kids, there's so many things that I talk about them with. And I think it's not about appropriateness of age level it's the appropriateness of how you um approach those discussions like i think obviously different age groups need different scaffolds and different you know parameters put in place to make them feel safe in those discussions but it's absolutely imperative to have these discussions you know um it it it, it seems to me that there really is no appropriate age it's just 
there is this momentous moment where we need to start having these conversations immediately. And we need to start having them now with our kids and with our students and, and with our families. And, and so, you know, I think that idea of appropriateness is just so frustrating to me because, you know, you hear it all the time. It's not appropriate to talk about it at the dinner table. It's not appropriate to talk about it in kindergarten. It's not appropriate to talk about it with, with, you know, crazy uncle Joe. And it's, it's just, it's frustrating because that, that appropriateness, like that's exactly the problem is why isn't it appropriate? And it's not, you know, and it's, it's inappropriate because it makes you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if it's making you uncomfortable, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And therefore those conversations have to happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love, there was, there was a reading and I, I'm blanking on who it was, but um, I was reading and they, they called these conversations like courageous conversations, right? Because they're, they're occurring in places where I think you're going to feel uncomfortable having them. Um, but, but, you know, if we're going to move beyond this liberal multiculturalism, if we're going to move beyond this benevolent multiculturalism, then we have to start having that courage and those, those conversations that will make uncomfortability, but uncomfortability leads to progress and change. And what is the goal of education, if not to broaden, you know, knowledge bases and worldviews of students, of kids, right? Um, and so I don't think it's too early. I don't think, again, especially because it is a part of the world around us, uh, they may be forces that are acting on them already. And knowledge is a good thing for them to have, for them to help with their worldview, right? Um, in my head, the worst case scenario is that a kid recognizes this already and says, well, yes, blah, 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 and shares something that is already happening or that they are already experiencing. And, you know, they didn't have the tools to deal with it, but maybe within that conversation, they do. Right. right? And I think people underestimate how students will handle these conversations, you know, even personally, you know, I, I'm guilty of this, you know, before I started getting exposed to all of these ideas, you know, I remember my first year teaching, um, we, I treaded very lightly on my political unit, you know, I, I treaded very lightly on the topic of immigration, because this was like in the heat of um, the presidential election of 2016. And I was, you know, I was a second year teacher, I was very, you know, I, I just didn't know how to frame it. And, you know, my second year, I, I, I finally just told myself, you know, these kids are mature young adults and you know what, this is impacting their life. And, and some of them are direct descendants of, of immigrants and they need to have these conversations. And, you know, at that point I said, you know what, I'm tired of being scared and I'm tired of, of, of being scared of what parents will say or what admin will say. And I finally had a, a, you know, open seminar discussion where my students talked about immigration and immigration reform. And they talked about refugee crisis and they talked about sort of political um, upheavals and, and war in other countries. And you know what, they handled it so amazingly and they had so many things to offer up and, and so many different life experiences and, and different stories. And it was the most amazing class I've ever had in my life. And it was it was phenomenal. And I finally, and, and the reason it was so impactful was because I finally let go of benevolent liberal multiculturalism. And I finally let them have authentic conversations about real issues. I think you can also bring in the fact that if they don't have the conversation in your classroom, they might not have it anywhere else. Yeah. Um, especially because depending on the culture that they come from, some cultures are more open than others. Some are very close to talking about what happens in the house it's whatever stays within these walls it's going to stay there and you don't talk about it but maybe it's something that's dragging the kid down like it's something that they really want to let go and you don't have to talk about it in a negative light it's just bring it to the table and discuss what's actually happening because it is the reality you can't neglect something that is a lived experience and then just to like <laughs> the last point to that you cannot underestimate the experience of the quiet student, because you may have, you, know, you may have that conversation in your classroom. And again, I was always shocked at the number of conversations that ended up there because again, I teach art, like secondary art, high school art, we don't have desks, we have tables, and there's a lot of sort of like process and conversation that happens. You know, I never had a quiet classroom, 
but you'd be surprised at how much I felt like the students who were not talking were getting from it. You might only have a few people engaging in that conversation or steering that or wanting to share something about it. And again, but giving them that space and that platform and that environment sometimes I felt benefited not just the students who were speaking, but the students who were not, who just, you know, could reconcile or could recognize something, pieces of those conversations. Um, maybe they didn't have to share, but they just wanted to know that they weren't the only one or that, you know, to just sort of, I feel like all students benefited from some of those small conversations wherever they were going um, in their own ways. And that's always a good thing or a positive thing, or at least where I was coming from. And for them. And I think, you know, with all of these conversations, you know, I, I think it's so important to to have them because I mean, I don't know if y'all have seen like the latest on DACA, like there there's a new attack on it and a new attack on on applications and, and allowing, you know, DACA. It, it, I mean, it's just we aren't we haven't arrived. And I and I think a lot of people think we've arrived because racism is, you know, not a thing anymore. There, you know, we don't have the KKK and it's like, um, actually we still do. They're just, you know, better at hiding it. And yeah, we still have racism and we still have, you know, we still have all of these issues that I think, you know, are under attack right now. And I think, you know, in terms of, of our, our reaction against them in terms of critical multiculturalism and, and critical race theory and, all of these issues, you know, everything that we're trying to do is under attack. And I think, you know, it's important now more than ever to have these hard conversations. Yeah. Um, you're right. These are these are issues that are not resolved. These are issues that are still being played out among state legislatures, among district courts, um, and amongst, you know, all of these ways in which they are, these issues are impacting education and are having firsthand impacts on your students. Um, and I felt like I got a lot more feedback of that because I taught secondary. And so, you know, in high school, like they really are wearing a lot of their feelings sometimes right at the surface um, and they can articulate, they understand about issues of residency, issues of, you know, uh, legal status, issues of, you know, things like that in which one court decision or one judge can make a ruling. And the next thing you know, this entire, you know, um, program is, you know, set on its heels and now it becomes um, an executive issue, maybe, we don't know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> day to day, it feels like larger context can have an issue in your classroom. And that is one of the things that as educators, we have to be really, really aware of for our students. And I think that connects back to another issue that we kind of talked about with this week's readings, like issues of privilege, because how privileged are some that don't have to think about this? Yeah. They don't have to. I mean, and 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 I, I mean that in, in the term of this does not impact their daily life and therefore they don't consciously think about it every day. They don't worry about losing a visa and not being able to study here. They don't worry about, you know, their livelihoods. They don't worry all of those factors, you know, and that's such a privileged, you know, position to not have to think critically. And I think that's part of the problem too, is we have this privileged class that, that are sort of insulated from these issues. And they have this, this predisposition to just kind of, you know, turn their heads or, 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 or sort of, you know, uh, but I'm not racist, but I'm not this, but I'm not. And it, it, it kind of becomes this way of them protecting themselves from being put in these positions where they actually have to examine their practice, their ideologies, their viewpoints. Um, and so I think that too, you know, this whole neoliberalism in education, it wants to frame students as we're all equal. Every student is equal and, it, and, and we all give them an equal education and they all have equal access. And it, it's missing that point. It's missing that point that there isn't equal access and there isn't equal you know, access to, to schooling. I mean, look at schools. Not every school is equal. Not every school is equal in terms of economic um, improvements or economic um, sort of uh, materials. You know, I, I worked in a school where they had down the street, the school had like 10 3D printers. I mean, you know, you have students working with 3D printers, whereas, you know, on the South side, you might have a school that can't even order textbooks. 
you know, let alone lab materials, let alone, you know, anything for their biology or science classes. They don't have calculators. I mean, the list goes on and on of all of these material inequalities that, you know, I think gets missed when we start talking about neoliberalism and how it's, you know, it, it's just missing the mark. I mean, you don't even have to look far. Like, just think about this past year. I have kids that they have three Macs and they have uh, Playstations and Xboxes and they get the new iPhone as soon as it comes out. And then I had kids who at the beginning of, of the school year had no access to a computer because the school hadn't provided Chromebooks to them. Like at that point, it wasn't an issue to the school. Like, hey, some of these kids don't have computers. It wasn't until maybe a weekend they were like, oh, wait, you know what? We got to order Chromebooks. And then, you know what? We actually needed more than what we thought. And then you started to see like, hey, actually a lot of these students don't have access to even Wi-Fi. So I know my district started to tell kids um, well, if you don't have Wi-Fi, go park in a parking lot of a, the library or your school or any ad, uh, administrative office, and you'll have access to Wi-Fi in that case. But you're not starting to realize, like, hey, it's not the matter of they don't have Wi-Fi. It's like, why don't they have Wi-Fi? Why don't they have Two, it, that's another hurdle and another obstacle. Not only the fact that they don't have access to the Wi-Fi, and not, not only are we not talking about why they don't have access, but then we're having them go to a parking lot where how do they have access to that parking lot? Is a parent driving them? Do they have someone that can give them? I mean, it, there's so many other complexities to this, which just shows there's still absences. And even then, schools cover it up, but like, well, we provided 600 Chromebooks to, to our student population, and we provided 600 uh, Wi-Fi hotspots in a way of like covering up that deficit that we're talking about. Like you're just trying to say, we did all of these things to cover up the hole, but you're not addressing what was a hole there in the beginning, right? It's just crazy to think. It's, and it's self-congratulatory. It's self-congratulatory. It speaks to that sort of like, um, in, the, in our text, they were talking about power relationships amongst groups, but it speaks specifically to not just power relationships, but economic relationships. Because imagine you're that kid who maybe doesn't have access to Wi-Fi, who just got a shiny new Chromebook, but also doesn't have access to the parking lot. So you get a ride, you take a bus, you're sitting outside, maybe in the shade if you can find some so that you can get your Chromebook online. And there you are, as opposed to you know, a neighbor or someone else in your class or someone else in your district who is obviously at home and comfortable with their computer access and everything else. And so you think about all of the ways in which, you know, it, I don't know about you, but it was really, really hard as an educator <laughs> during all of this to imagine the ways in which school does provide a, a, a sort of like equal climate for them um, that is air conditioned, that they can sit down, that they can work comfortably, that they can, because they don't, not all of them have access to that regularly, right? Um, and so even the issues of like them getting lunch and them getting their snacks and them getting whatever, um, it, it just, it was one of the ways in which it exacerbated and called attention to all of the ways in which things are not equal, uh, that students do not experience um, equity in terms of their education. Uh, and as long as things are based on property values and like, you know, property taxes, they're not going to be, but that's another discussion. Um, but yeah, I think that idea of privilege uh, was very much an access, I think, is something that has been on the minds of educators, uh, especially in this last year. Um, and it is a privilege for our students to not have to worry about things like that, right? I agree. I mean, I, and especially, I think you're right. Like I, I'm very interested to see how these, you know, principles and ideals that we're talking about, how they play out in a pre-COVID world, or sorry, post-COVID world. Um, now that they've been sort of these inequalities really, I think, and what I'm hoping is, is that it doesn't become one of those where it's like super, super prescient when it happens, but in two years we're done talking about it and, and everything goes back to the status quo. And that I think is my biggest concern is that you know post covid like we have so many opportunities for growth that i don't want to see passed over very much so um, we had led that ladson billings article about sort of like you know starting over and hoping that we can rebuild from here um, i don't know about you but it doesn't look like that 
maybe it's going to happen, but I still hold hope. <laughs> I am ever hopeful as an educator, as a person, um, and as somebody uh, who works in this field. So we will see. Um, yeah. Holding on to that hope, uh, we will be back after the break to discuss what we're gonna call the Debbie Downer syndrome and where we should teach multicultural education. Welcome back to this week's, week's transformative talk. I'm Samantha. Nora. And Viviana. Your hosts. We left off discussing neoliberalism and education and privilege. Putting these terms into perspective, we felt the need to indulge in critical and personal discussions of our responses to these topics, what we are calling the Debbie Downer syndrome. Um, I don't know about y'all. I am like the total... I feel like I'm just a Debbie Downer about everything sort of in our current climate. Um, I know that, you know, for my curriculum in particular, um, I'm a social studies teacher. Um, and so a lot of a lot of big changes are happening in the curriculum, which I think is making it very difficult to find ways to interrupt neoliberalism the way that we were talking about in, in Act One. And I know for me, especially in my classroom, um, you know, House Bill 3979 and uh, 2497, which is called the 1836 Project, basically completely stripped um, any discussion of race, any discussion of um, criticality in, in discussing issues of race. And so I know for me, it's been pretty demoralizing looking at sort of the impact those are going to have. Um, in particular on my curriculum. Um, and so I, I, I think it's just, it's, it's very hard not to have this Debbie Downer syndrome when you're faced with sort of that attack on, well, this is what I was gonna do in my classroom and like, how do I, how do, I do it now, you know? I, I, I think a lot of it is sort of the weight of, in your case, it is literally directly, impacting like state legislative initiatives and bills are impacting your curriculum directly. But I think sometimes it's just the weight for a lot of other, you know, teachers in different disciplines and different coursework. Um, it's the weight of sort of what we are learning, what we know and how we approach our classrooms, right? Um, and the weight of that, the impact of that and feeling like, am I doing enough? Is this the right thing to do for my students? I think everybody in education is always trying to do the right thing for their students and do the best they can for them. Um, or at least I would like to think that because I am ever hopeful in that way, like you, I am hopeful. Um, but there's a lot that comes with that, right? And the more you know, the more you learn about this, the more you feel it your duty to sort of like interrupt um, those hegemonic forces, right? To interrupt that neoliberalism sort of um, standardized viewpoint, um, both in your classroom, in your practice, in your practice, and for the benefit of your students, right? In the most important ways. And the impact of this, yes, there is going to be a small impact in art, but there's going to be a huge impact in other ways, right? I know we had talked about the AP. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think I think what I find is so frustrating about this, too, is, you know, we spent part one talking about neoliberalism in education. We talked about what benevolent multiculturalism looks like. And I think it's frustrating because these bills are putting us right back to that point, you know, and, and so many scholars, you know, Gloria Latson Billings um, and, and other CRT scholars and, and even Christine Fleeter has all said that, you know, we cannot be liberal multiculturalists, like multiculturalism alone is not enough, that, that, that's not enough. And, and they all talk about how there's this criticality needed. And, and, you know, with bills like this, it's just cutting teachers off to where they can have impactful changes and impactful conversations the way that we were talking about in part one. Yeah. And it's clearly necessary because <laughs> I feel like the group of legislators who are making these decisions about education matriculated and grew up in a time frame where you had you know, liberal multiculturalism, where you had this sort of like multiculturalism that stopped at the like four Fs, right? Um, and to have young adults and adults out there have a better framework, have a more broadened view of what this truly means, the impact of you know, them, their actions, their voting and everything else. Um, if you are teaching this, it will help them have a broader perspective that will allow for that. 
Um, and I think part of the reason we're here is because we don't have that. Well, exactly. And, you know, the, the two bills I brought up, um, 3979, which is a direct attack on critical race theory. It doesn't ever say critical race theory. Not saying it. That's what it is. Um, and, and, and that's what it is. And so, and then you have 2497, which is the 1836 project, which is in direct um, opposition of the 1619 project by the New York Times, um, which, which actually talked about race and, and it, it started off history at when slaves came into America. And so, you know, th these bills, they are nationalism at, at, at its core. And it, it's this whole push for whitewashed, nice, unproblematic history. And, you know, these bills, and, and I hate to say it, you know, it's a direct attack on social studies. I, I think social studies is the one most impacted. But what, you know, I'm most fearful of is we're just the start. Yeah. We're the start. You know, this this bill, I, I'm sure, you know, it won't have as much of an impact, I think, on other subjects. And, and, and I'll let y'all obviously talk more to, more to your fields, but I don't think this is the end. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see this being the end of an attack on education. I don't think it is either. Um, and I, I think you're right in which a lot of, so in the bill specifically, and I think the 1836 and definitely the new one, the SB3, it literally says, like social studies is the impact point that it is supposed to be like at social studies, um, but they are kind of umbrellaing that into other courses, right? Into all classrooms and, and what can be um, addressed and listed. It's not gonna have a huge, well, okay. It will in some. So as far as the TEKS go for art, art history um, and historical relevance for works of art is required content. I know it doesn't always go in there um, for art one students or at least secondary. Um, but when I think about the impact of this, it's hugely going to be felt in AP art history uh, because as far as College Board is concerned, this is how things go. It is a very global class and you have to talk about uh, sort of imperialism, colonialism. You have to talk about the loss of objects, the loss of religion, the sort of impacts of colonialism on populations because it comes out in the artwork and so much of art is a political act responding to what is happening at the time and so they're requiring as far as their content a context for this there are big questions and big ideas you have to prepare them for that you have to teach them that and so i'm envisioning an environment in which you have you know your art classes that fall under this curriculum in which you have to sort of like approach it in a certain way or have to not maybe address certain things that could be considered, you know, racial or a racialized quality to the content. And yet another class in which that is a part of what you were teaching because that is what is required and you know, outside of that. Yeah, and you know, I, I didn't even think about that until we started talking right now. Um, you know, this, and, and this thought I had, it goes directly into neoliberalism, right? Because when you think about neoliberalism and the capitalist point, right? So you think of AP and you think of College Board and you think of Pearson and you think of, of McGraw-Hill and you think of all these businesses in education, well, who are they gonna serve? So Texas is putting forth these laws, right? They're trying to minimize race and curriculum. They're trying to minimize talking about racism. And so how long is it going to be before College Board decides to change its curriculum to where AP is no longer a place where these discussions can still happen? And how long is it until, I mean, we've already seen it. Other states are, are taking Texas's, you know, call and they're, they're passing their own CRT bills. And um, who is the UN ambassador that she called on all governors? Nikki Haley. Yes, Nikki Haley, she called on all governors to pass, you know, and to put forth these bills. And so, you know, I think that kind of gets to my point where I don't think, I don't think we've seen the end of this. And, and, you know, I can see it impacting other fields where they're talking about math and science. I mean, how long until they don't let you talk about other cultures or the actual true origin of algebra? Yeah. See, when I hear you guys talking, my teacher heart like feels for y'all because I feel like me as a math teacher I go under the radar with a lot of these things 
Um, and as I've been more exposed to all of this like critical theory and stuff, I've started to realize how I can bring those issues up in my classroom. Now I can address it like a straight up racism in your face. Here you go, this is what we did hundreds of years ago, but I can bring up populations. I can bring up different terms that are colloquial to a lot of these students. And in that way, bringing in that critical pedagogy. Now, being that we're under the radar, I feel like I don't know how this bill will address us or how it'll impact us directly in that moment. But at the same time, even though I don't know how it'll impact us in the STEM field, I wonder what the approach of administration is going to be. Because I can tell you right now, administration, when the president was getting inaugurated, we were told that if your content cannot directly tie into a teak, we were not allowed to show the presidential election. Now okay. I had, I had, no, yeah, I'm serious. Really? I had, I had girl students in my classroom, like, hey, miss, are we going to see the inauguration? And I had to say, I cannot physically tie what you want to watch to a standard because nowhere in my standard does it say, how about we celebrate a woman being in the office? How about we celebrate any, like I could not address it and I could not show it. So that's part of the thing, like being under the radar is a good thing because I could still kind of instill those things. But it, because it was such an important moment in history, I can fly by and say, let me just do it anyways. Because I knew these kids were gonna go in there and go home and say, we watched it in math class. I couldn't watch it in science and I couldn't watch it in ELAR, but hey, my math teacher that has nothing to do with social studies went ahead and did it. So it's just kind of, it's crazy to think how one bill, how even though it doesn't directly impact the STEM field, it's going to impact us in one way or another. It just so happens that we're under the radar and we might get away with certain things at one point, but it's going to come a point in time where, like you said, Sam, it's just going to be in it for everybody. Like we're all going to be limited as to what we can do. Now with the idea of multicultural education and what we what we can and we can't do, where do you guys think we should address and teach multicultural education? So I think, you know, thinking about this question, honestly, I think it should be from the time you enter school. Like, I think it should be everywhere um, that, you know, it's kind of, we talk about dreaming and, and imagining of what could be. So that's what I would love to see, but I, you know, I just, I think now it's more important than ever to talk about multicultural education. You know, it, I, I think it needs to be everywhere. We need to have discussions on college campuses and undergraduate classes. I think we need to have courses in graduate work. I think we need to have real, authentic, helpful professional development for teachers that is required. It's not optional. It's not, and it's not ticking off a checkbox that it is a requirement to have diversity training. Um, you know, all of those issues. And I think, oh, sorry, Nora. Uh, I think there's an evident dissonance in that educator preparation, which is why when I was talking to my sister, she has no experience or any like exposure to any of this. So I kind of, when I explained to her what critical race theory is and everything that's happening, I put it like in, in layman's terms and like, trying to simplify it as much as she could. And I wanted to see what her perspective, she's 18 years old. So what does she consider Gen Z, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I wanted to kind of gauge her understanding of what's going on. And I asked her, I was like, how do you feel about talking racism, talking about racist ideas and how the country was founded? And she said, I feel like it's a bad thing that people want to neglect something that happened. And I was just kind of picking at, at like her ideas where she was going with it. And I was like, do you feel like, you won't teach about racism? And she said, I'll find a way. So just and I, hearing that, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm starting something in a social studies teacher that's, she's not even in the field yet. She hasn't even started a college class, but instilling that little idea, like, hey, it'll spread some way. Yeah. And I think this ties to why multicultural education, I don't think it needs to be limited to teacher education fields. I, I think it needs to be more pervasive than that. Because, you know, when you start to think about you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure y'all watch them too, but like, I've been watching those videos of people saying, just because I don't want my daughter to learn CRT doesn't make me a racist. And I'm like, but it does, but it does. And the, and the problem is, is people don't understand what these theories mean and they don't understand 
the positive impact that comes from that. And it's not about making white people feel guilty. I am, I am so tired of, of this whole idea of white fragility and the idea that whites are, are hiding from these conversations because you know, multicultural education, I think can provide that bridge to where they can start to have real conversations about what these actually mean and start to realize like, this is history. This is what happened. You know, I'm sorry that, that you're finally being confronted with something that maybe you haven't been confronted with, but it happened. It's real. Like you need to accept that and you need to finally start being part of, of the mechanisms of change because that's still happening. Um, I hope, I hope you understand um, that Sam keeps saying that because as the white person amongst us, there is a legitimacy to you saying that, that we don't have, that I don't have. So I have said something like that in the classroom, uh, in a graduate classroom. And someone was like, you can't say that. And I was like, watch me. But then I realized the reason that they were saying that was because I could not speak from a point of power, from a point of dominance, right? Because I am not, I am, I am, I don't have that privilege. And so when I hear you say that, Sam, I'm like, okay, please understand that the weight of your words carries so much more weight than they would if they were mine or if they were Viviana's because of that. Um, so I hope that you keep shouting that from the rooftops because maybe, maybe, maybe. Oh, I know. I, I, I'm already, so, you know, obviously y'all know I'm in the process of writing my thesis and I'm like, I cannot wait until someone calls me a white trader. I'm like, I cannot wait for that moment because then I'll know that I finally did my job. A white trader? A white trader. Yeah. So there's this whole movement of calling like whites who are actually getting behind these critical theories and are starting to, you know, really examine what it means to be white and what it means in and everything. And so if you have this awakening, there's this whole idea that you are now a traitor to your race and, and you're a traitor to whiteness and, and you get called the white traitor. So I'm like, I'm waiting for someone to give me that label because I'm really like, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like, I hope nobody ever calls you that. I've never heard that. Wow. No, I mean, it's, and I, think, and I think that's what's so frustrating, like sort of being, especially being a white person and, and you know, it's important to acknowledge that I am a white middle-class woman and, and that, like you talked about, that grants me power and privilege. And, you know, for some people that's, that's paralyzing and that's, they, they get racked with guilt. And, and the problem is it's not about being guilty. It's not about being shameful. It's not about, you know, it's about acknowledging reality and it's about confronting that and saying, you know what? I know that I have power that when I walk into a room, there might be someone in the corner in a teacher's lounge making racist comments about a student, and they're going to think that I agree with them because of the color of my skin. And they would not say the same thing around a different teacher of color. And so, you know, there's an understanding that I have to operate in those spaces to disrupt white supremacy and disrupt complicity in systems of oppression and talking about students in, in deficit terms. Because we, you know, as a white teacher, I've experienced that. I, I have seen teachers talking about students in deficit terms, and I know they're doing it because I'm a white person in the room with, with them. I've unfortunately had a little bit of that experience because they see my name and my skin tone and assume things. Um, and I have let it be known that I am not down with what they are down with and what they are saying, but I'm sure that there's a whole lot more that they don't have access to. Right. Um, and that that exists. And you think about sort of, you know, I feel so often we are amongst, you know, our peers and these graduate programs, we are all learning and expanding where we are, what we see, you know, as our educational roles and education in general. Um, and then I don't know about you, but I think back to my campus or former campus and, you know, there's definitely a sort of reckoning that has to happen where we reconcile that idea. Um, going right back to where you were saying everywhere, I think everywhere is the crucial concept. I think Austin brought that up in our facilitation. Because not only is it a foundational thing, I think pre-service teachers, I think there should be a class in pre-service education about multiculturalism, like a dedicated class. You can't rely on faculty. You can't rely on, you know, you never know what's going to happen. 
But beyond that, I think it should be an ongoing thing. Like we talked about professional developments and so forth, because at pre-service, you were in a different place. And I think this was in the reading. Do you remember that? Where they're talking about, you know, at pre-service, you're thinking about different things. You're thinking about classroom management. You're thinking about all of the ways in which, yeah. you know, and yet, and then when you, once you've been in the classroom for a few years, well, you've got all of these things down. And I feel at that point, because obviously as an educator, I always think education is ongoing, but I feel like this issue specifically speaks to something that is always going to be ongoing and always going to be something that you need to periodically check in with, check in with yourself, you know, check in for your practice and check in for your students, right? Yeah. And I would love to see something like this become a requirement for all undergrads, not just, and like I said, brought up earlier, like, I really think this, these are conversations that need to happen in every space, because we're starting to see that every other space is being attacked, you know, and, and, and we're attacking, you know, what it means to be politically correct. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'd say, oh, well, I don't want to look racist or I don't want to look this way. And it's like, all of it is getting lost. I, I, I think that's where I, I kind of have this, you know, utopian ideal where these conversations happen in every classroom from the time they enter kindergarten, because no matter what field they go into as an adult, they need to have that background of, you know, this is what an authentic education looks like. This is what authentic teachers look like. This is what authentic conversations about diversity and interaction with others that differ from me look like. I think it's really important too, that if a college has in their mission statement, something along the lines of like social justice, then we need to make sure that every undergraduate is being prepared for like the real world. Every undergraduate has to have like a speech credit, a math credit, a social studies credit. So how about even if you're not a social studies major in that class, you're addressing all of these things that are real. We can't neglect it because it's just being ignorant at that point. Yeah, because you know, like what you just said, I for undergraduate, I feel like it's also should be a requirement for graduate um, and for anybody, especially, you know, so many of these programs are made for uh, individuals and educators to go into not just curriculum instruction, but also to go into administration and leadership and so forth. So I feel like it should be a requirement or at least a crucial foundational aspect of graduate programs and into advanced and terminal programs like PhD programs. Um, there should be some kind of requirement within that context. Uh, to make sure that graduates as a foundational aspect of the social justice for the program right um are taking that you know both within the context of the program and then as they go out into the world absolutely and and i think that um, i think that's very important to note and i and i think that gets often neglected um but thank you for listening to our podcast to continue staying informed about some of the topics we discussed we highly encourage you to participate in your local elections be knowledgeable about who holds seats of power in your school board city council and community and research the ways in which your state legislature is influencing the curriculum you teach in your state that's all for this episode thanks for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now, but I'll see you in the next episode of the Transformative Talk.